Again, I'm Silas, associate pastor here, and it is a joy to have you worshiping with us uh, today in our room, in this space. We're grateful for this space, and uh, I'm grateful to be stewarding the word for us today as we finish our series going through parables that have been present in the book of Luke. So we recognize that parables is a form that happens all through scripture. It starts with parables in the Old Testament. And in this series, we specifically looked at parables that communicate to us in the book of Luke. All series long, a central thread that we've aimed to weave into our readings of parables is that these stories, they're stories of intent. Right? There's no detail that um, is put there by accident. There's meaning and intent behind these words. They're crafted with purpose. Or perhaps more accurately, they're crafted with a variety of purposes in mind. That's what the parables do. They speak to us in a variety of ways. So circling back to a voice we've heard from all series, Dr. Amy Jo Levine, she's from Vanderbilt. She's spot on when she says, reducing parables to a single meaning destroys their aesthetic and their ethical potential. Reducing them to one single meaning, it reduces what they're able to do to us and for us, what they're meant to do within us. Now, full disclosure, AJ, she is a biblical scholar, but she's Jewish, right? She's not Christian. She doesn't claim to be. And yet, as someone who's distinctly aware and rooted within the tradition that Jesus is speaking into in this time, She's engaging the parables as Jesus' audience would have engaged the parables. Her insights, they're exceptionally uh, valuable for us in our context. As we've explored these stories together over the last five, six weeks, we want to remember that every time we look at the parable, every inversion, every way we look at it from different angles, every inversion of a parable is an invitation towards transformation every time. And so we looked at some parables like the Good Samaritan parable. And in that one, we looked at it from the perspective, you can look at it through the perspective of the priest, of the Levite, or the Samaritan. And depending on where you see yourself in the story, the story is going to read you in a different way. Uh, through all of the parables, we've kind of done this. And we've done this intentionally not to offer, this is how you read the parable. This is what the parable means. But we have been intentional to say, there are a variety of ways that this parable is speaking. How is God speaking to you in the ways that this happens? Right. So not to reduce the parables to one meaning, not to say, this is how you read this passage, but instead a recognition that we are invited as people and as co-creators with God in the work of deciphering and discerning God's word in the text, we are invited to co-create and to discover God in the world around us in our reading. And so when we read the parables, expanding from the parables to the entirety of scripture, some things that we should be asking ourselves in our reading are this. What is the text inviting us to in our particular reading today. Right, we could read the parable next week and pull out a different thread. But today, what is God inviting us into? 
The second question is, how is the text trying to transform us within the angle, the inversion, that particular way we're looking at it today? So what's it inviting us into, and then how's it working back on us? Another thing you've heard me say before, as we read the text, we want the text to read us. We want to hold ourselves in a way that allows the text to speak directly to us. In there, in that moment, God is communing with us. So our passage this morning is from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And in our reading, may we hear what God is inviting us to. Pray with me while we read together. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day and this time to pause. We're grateful for just this space to worship together, to commune with you through the presence of our friends, our family, and our neighbor. We pray as we allow these words to speak to us, this parable to transform our lives, that we might heed your invitation. And in the ways we look at it, we might find transformation into your likeness. May the spoken word be faithful to your written word. May it lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. So Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, we're from the NIV translation this week. And the passage begins like this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? If you were with us towards the end of May, you may remember that we actually explored this text earlier, um, more recently. For context, at the time, there had been several high-profile tragedies that had taken place within a few days of each other. Young lives had been lost. There was a war that was escalating uh, in Ukraine. And I know that some of us had very direct connections to cities and places in Buffalo, in Texas, in L.A. I remember having personal conversations with some of us that had expressed frustration with how it felt like the idea of thoughts and prayers seemed to be the default response anytime we face collective calamity. Some in our community felt like prayer seems to be the standard sign-off on any social media posts when we're confronted with injustice. Multiple times that week, I've been asked this pointed question by folks in our community. 
Do thoughts and prayers do any good? Do thoughts and prayers do any good? And so in response to this, in service, we were meant to be preaching about service itself, tied to a different series, but in service we pivoted, we changed our plans, and I offered a word to our community called Thoughts and Prayers When the World is on Fire. This is from May 29th. Thoughts and Prayers When the World is on Fire. Because when Christians are confronted with the notion of whether or not thoughts and prayers do any good, this parable cuts through all the noise. And it asks us a different question. It asks us a probing question. It asks us, what kind of good do we intend to do with our thoughts and prayers? Right? Not, do thoughts and prayers do any good? But what kind of good, if we claim Christ as Lord, what kind of good do we intend to do with our thoughts and prayers? This parable cuts through the noise. I won't rehearse the whole sermon or rehash the whole sermon because, sorry about that, uh, all, set, all week I've sensed that we, we benefit from exploring a different topic, a different idea, a different inversion, so to speak, of this parable. And you can revisit that one. Again, it's on all of our socials, website, YouTube. You can revisit that one. But I do think it's prudent to give a 30,000-foot flyover in our reading uh, that kind of flips how we typically read this parable. Traditionally, this reading is one that encourages us to prayer, encourages us to embody a certain kind of action and reaction in the face of prayer. And so we place ourselves in the seat of the widow, coming before a judge who, it says in the text, neither fears God nor fears man. Now, in our readings, typically, in a way that says, this is a parable that excites us about prayer, that presses us towards our neighbor and towards persistence in prayer, we can note that the subtitle of this parable, depending on the translation, oftentimes just focuses on the widow. So if you go to the New King James, or sorry, if you go to the King James Version, in the older edition, this parable was called the parable of the nagging widow. Right? A little bit more edge than persistent widow that's in the NIV. But there's this focus on the act of continually praying, always be praying. And when we sing songs like we did this morning about promises, about the fullness of God, there's also that song that uh, we've sung before, like, you're never going to let me down. In some ways, we can hear that message in the same way we hear this parable. And that is a posture of absolute resilience and persistence, petitioning to a God who may or may not act. Pray with persistence. Intercede with unwavering faith. In my tradition, in the Pentecostal tradition, we would have this moment called the pray-through moment, right? Like you're at the altar and you're praying through until God acts. We recognize that prayer is, in some ways, informed by this kind of reading of the parable. 
And yet we also recognize that prayer is not a one-way street. We'll all say that. Prayer is conversing with God. It's talking to God in its most simple form. And in that way, prayer is not monologue, it's dialogue. And so how does this parable speak to us on the other side of conversation, on the other side of talking? If prayer is a conversation, notice what happens as we invert where we see ourselves in the text. Our passage notes that, again, the judge didn't fear God or fear man. Didn't fear anyone. They were their own maker. Complete autonomy. Can decide what they want. Can do what they want. The judge is their own person. And they are tasked with discerning, with making judgments. That's what they do. They're a judge. Discerning what to respond to and discerning how to react. So here's how this parable starts to read us in different ways. One, we can read it from the position of the widow that says, pray with persistence, always be praying, always be interceding. If we read it from the position of the judge, it completely changes. Because now it says, listen to God speaking through the margins and bring about my justice when you hear cries of injustice. Completely different reading. But through the inversion of us as the widow, the story invites us to pray with persistence. Through the inversion of us as the judge, the story invites us to respond to God's call for justice from the margins of society, from the widow, from the people who are on the fringes. That's how the parable reads us. Respond. React to the call for justice from the margin of our society. This is another way that this parable reads us. Again, if you're interested in revisiting that message, you can find it online. We also ended with some words of wisdom and a corporate prayer from Teresa of Avila. She wrote this book where she noted how the context of her time is not too dissimilar from the context of our time. For her, feudalism was transforming, so there's a new system of governance happening. She's lived through a pandemic. She's being brought on charges against the, or by the Spanish Inquisition for heresy. There's a whole kind of upheaval in terms of Catholicism and Lutheranism. There's a context around that you might find resonance with our world today. And she says, the world's on fire. What are we to do? And then she goes on this long journey, inviting us into prayer. So I encourage you to see that if I hadn't preached that message that week, we might have done that here. That said, as we invert our passage again and allow it to speak to us this morning, I want you to notice how verse 1 begins, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray, and not give up. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. This is important. Compared with the majority of Jesus' other parables, you're noticing how this scene is introduced to us? If you look at the parables we looked at over the last several weeks, they normally just begin with Jesus says a parable. The text might say, and Jesus told them a parable, or, and Jesus said to them in a parable. We don't have intent narrated to us 
and hardly any of the other parables that show up in the Gospel of Luke. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, the prodigal sons, the two debtors. There's just no intent that's given to us. But in this parable, directly before the parable begins, Jesus tells us why he's giving us this parable, which is curious, right? Intent is present in this one more than most of the other parables in the Gospels, not just in Luke. So that's curious, right? What do we do with that? What's it saying to us? In our reading today, one way to make sense of this is a recognition that this parable isn't trying to tell us about the mechanics of prayer in terms of this is what you say when you pray. These are the ways that you pray. Instead, it's trying to tell us about the posture we assume when we pray. Right? Not the mechanics of prayer, but the posture we assume when we pray. Now, this isn't like the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. This passage is about posture, not mechanics. And when we realize this, when we realize the intent, that it's trying to shape the way that we engage in prayer, not the, uh, not the tactics of prayer, this passage starts to speak to us in a different way. In truth, when we pay attention to what Jesus has already said about prayer in Luke, he's already addressed the mechanics of how you pray, the tactics of, pray, of prayer. He does this earlier in Luke 11. Let me read it for us. Luke 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. Then Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, and also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. We know this prayer. Jesus tells them how to pray. But now, as we are a couple chapters further into the book, we start to learn more about not just the mechanics or the tactics of prayer, but the posture we engage when we pray. Jesus expands on what he has said before, and he needs to show them how they should always pray and not give up how you should always pray and not give up. How does Jesus do this? Let's look at the story. What is the posture that the judge takes up when he eventually brings justice to the widow? What's his motivation? Like, what causes him to act? Does anyone remember? If we look at the text, verse 5 spells it out clearly for us. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she doesn't come back and attack me. You're seeing the way that it's naming a kind of way to pray. Not about what you say, but how you say it, the posture you're saying it from, and it's critiquing that particular type of prayer. Prayers that are focused 
on myself. Again, the judge only brings justice because he doesn't want to get attacked by the widow. That's what causes him to act. The judge is motivated by self-preservation and fear. He's motivated by self-preservation and fear. And his posture, his way of holding himself, is one thread that Jesus, he's trying to unravel in this parable. Last week, we looked at the prodigal sons. One way to engage the story is through an unpacking of how both the younger son and the older son, they choose inheritance over family, over and over and over again. Now, this is pretty clear, right? Like the younger son, he begins by asking his father for the inheritance in contrast to lived reality with his family. I'm taking my stuff and I'm leaving. The older son doesn't come into the party. And if you know anything about the customs that are there, he's supposed to actually kick off the party. Now, the father would host the banquet, and the son, as the one coming in, since this is now his inheritance, right? The other half is gone. This is now his. Everything that the father has is yours. This is now what belongs to him. And so there's all this messaging wrapped into why doesn't he go in? One way to read his intent of not going in is that he wants to preserve. He's upset that they're killing the fattened calf. If you notice in that passage, he says, you've never even given me a goat. It doesn't say calf because a calf, that's a once in a lifetime thing. A goat is typically one tenth of the value of a calf. So he's intending certain things with that. And he's saying, listen, he spent everything already. You're taking what is going to be mine. And you're spending it on this person who already squandered everything. In both cases, both sons are choosing inheritance over family. Because the crux of the story is the younger son doesn't leave his party to go get the older brother. And the older brother doesn't go into the country to get his younger brother. You have this whole narrative through Israel's history of two brothers at feuding. Remember when Lot and Abraham separated in the Old, in the, in the Old Testament? I think it's Genesis 13, 18, one of those ones. They separate. The text tells us specifically why they had to separate. And this is a, one of the most striking verses in all the Bible. It says, Their possessions were so great that the land could not support them anymore. So they separated. Their possessions were so great that the land couldn't support them. Now the question that we should, that the text is trying to form on us is not take that at face value and amass more stuff. It's what are you going to put above your relationship with other? What's going to separate you off from your relationship with other? In this case, Lot and Abraham, they separate because the land cannot sustain their possessions. Now, this is one reading of their story, but it ties in to this one. Inheritance over family. Possessions over relationship. This parable and the prodigal son ties us to the same posture that we see in this prayer. Myself against the other. 
praying prayers of self-preservation out of fear that I might get attacked from the relationship of the person who's on the outskirts of society. Seeing how these parables are weaving together. It also makes us reimagine how the Psalms speak to us. Psalm 37 has this key verse that perhaps you've heard as it relates to prayer, which is the concept that delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, one way to read this is if I, right, cause and effect, if I delight in God, then everything I ask for will be done for me. You can read it that way. But the posture you engage this, I think faithfully, is a little different. It says, when I, or if I, delight in the Lord, the things that I actually care about, the things I desire, those are going to be given to me by God. You see the difference? On one hand, it's never interacted with my being, with my posture, with the way that I process faith, with the way I live faith. It's just God becomes the mechanism to get me the things I want if I'm faithful enough. Let me say, that reading of Scripture and of this parable, of the Psalms, of all the ways that we talk about prayer, that's a misreading. It misses what prayer is meant to actually form in us by giving us desires for the things that God desires. This, again, is the way that this parable is reworking our posture in prayer. It's pointing to us to say, how do you pray? How do you judge? How do you make decisions? How do you make discernments? Another example. In Mark 11, we have Jesus tell the disciples, he says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go Throw yourself in the sea. And they do not doubt in their heart, but believe that they will, uh, but believes that what they said will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, in that passage, right, in these verses, we can read this in the same posture that the unjust judge is giving his judgment. We can read it about getting what we want. If we believe, it will be done. I mean, Jesus says it. How do we make sense of these words? Two things to note about this passage. Every you there is plural. And so it's very different to say, when y'all say, versus when you say, and when you say. Because I might be praying something the exact opposite of what Alicia is praying. I don't think so, but maybe. Maybe if it's like sports or something. We're praying for our team to win. Someone's going to lose, right? I guess God didn't show up. That's not the way this works. That's not how this works. Right? Truly I tell y'all, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea. And it's that imagery of your holy place, the place that God has met you. Be thrown into the sea. 
and does not doubt in, notice this, their heart. Plural, y'all, one heart. Not their hearts. Completely changes how prayer is inviting us to hold. And that's why this pair, that's why this command from Jesus ends with this throwaway about forgiveness. If you read it in the other way, it's hard to make sense. What do I do with this verse? It just told me if I pray for anything and I believe it, it will happen. Oh, and then I should forgive. If you read it collectively, with the posture of not about what I'm praying for, but what we are praying, what God is praying through us in the relocation of our holy imagery and sights and all that to be, that changes everything. Changes everything. And so the bottom line is, as Jesus tells this parable to teach his disciples to always be praying and to not give up, do not miss how this parable orients us towards others. Do not miss how this parable, it orients us towards others. Prayer isn't cause and effect. Prayer isn't badgering God until God's annoyed enough to act. Right? Prayer is much more holistic. It's much more dynamic. And it actually requires more from us than we realize. In prayer, as we hear and respond to cries for justice from voices whom have experienced injustice, our posture in prayer is meant to open us up to relationship with God through our relationship with our neighbor. Not God and then neighbor, but through. It's fitting since it's hot and I'm a Pentecostal camp meeting preacher. I guess it's getting sweaty and we just switched to the handheld. Some of you are not going to get any of that because you don't have the camp meeting experience. But Tyler knows what I'm talking about. We're talking like sweat and sawdust Pentecostalism in the tent. Never mind. Don't worry about it. It is the summer. Um, In prayer, as we hear and respond to cries for justice from voices whom have experienced injustice, our posture in prayer is meant to open us up to relationship with God and our neighbors. And so the inversion of our parable invites us to allow our relationships to be transformed in prayer. Remember, every inversion that we take of a parable, it's not the only way. But every inversion invites us towards transformation of some kind. In the previous reading that we did back in May of this parable, it asked us the question about our praying and also our response, our hearing and our responding to God in prayer. That was more mechanistic, so to speak. But today we're focusing on a different inversion. We have a different invitation. Mother Teresa, she talks about how listening is the beginning of prayer. Listening is the beginning of prayer. 
like the judge in this parable, may our posture exceed the character of the unjust judge. We have someone presented in the text that tells you what you shouldn't be like. It gives you the floor. Like, if you're here, there's only up, right? It gives you what you're not supposed to be. And in a series that has continually challenged us to see ourselves in different places within the parables, may we also take time to see not just ourselves differently within the text, but our world, our neighbors, and pray to a God who brings hope to the hopeless. And that's where this text as a posture, it engages us to not just exude sympathy to others when we see injustice. Sympathy is feeling sorry for pain. It's also not just about empathy, relating to someone else's pain. What it does do is it calls us to model and hold a posture of prayer that is one of compassion. And that's suffering with someone. Distinction between feeling sorry for someone, resonating with someone's feeling, and then suffering with someone, those are completely different experiences. And we're called in this parable, just as we've seen in so many of the other ones where it says Jesus looked on the crowd with compassion. He was moved by compassion. There's a withness there. That word breaks into two parts. There's the with part, the beginning, the calm, and then there's the passion, which is what you're willing to suffer for. So we say, I'm passionate about something. Well, what are you willing to suffer for? In this way, compassion comes together of us suffering with others in the holding of their lives, in the holding of their value. And so this parable invites us to a posture of compassion in prayer. And so to close for us, I thought it'd be fitting if we take some time to pray. And this doesn't need to be about everything that's out there. This can start right at home. But what I want to do is offer a couple threads that we've hit through our parables this, this series. Perhaps you can cling on to one of them and pray over that and pray with that uh, in the back of your mind. We began our series with Nathan and David, and Jesus gives him a parable that eventually makes him recognize that he has committed fault. The parable that he tells causes David to recognize, you are the man, that's me. And it invites his repentance from there. Perhaps that's a thread to hold on to. The next parable was the parable of two debtors. And in that one, we looked at the way that hospitality is offered and grace is offered. Perhaps you would like to pray using this thread of grace to hold on to. This angle of grace. Next one was the Good Samaritan. And we looked about the idea of not just offering goodness to those who have been left for dead on the side of the road, but what do we do when 
our religious structures have treated us worse or treated people worse than the Samaritans have, the people that are not supposed to embody the fullness of God. What do we do with that frustration, with that recognition? What do you do with that threat? The last ones where we did the banquet feast, one about hospitality, who's invited to your table, who's not? Who's present at your table, who's not? For the prodigal sons, we talked about family versus inheritance, valuing of one thing over the other. What's going to keep you from running to your brother? And how will we pray over that? And then this last one, what posture do we take into prayer? So a variety of things to reflect on. I'd love to call Abby and Tavo up. They're going to play a little bit in the background for us just as we take a pause. And we do what this parable invites us to do. That's to pray. So in whatever way you feel led to. May you cling on to a thread that invites us to allow prayer to transform us. Again, perhaps something to grip onto is not what good do thoughts and prayers do, but what's God trying to do in you? What good is he trying to do through your act and practice of thinking and praying? My hope is that as we do this together and as we continue over the next series and next years to engage God's word in different ways and to let it read us that we might encounter and be formed into Christ's image that we might model Christ well in the world so let us pray Abby's or Abigail's going to play in the background here I'm going to pray an opening prayer over us and then when Abby starts singing let us join in the worship through song and join her and uh, worship together. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to reflect on how you call us to pray. We pray that you would give us the desires of our hearts, the things that we care about, and help us recognize all the ways that you are alive in the world, all the ways that the world is broken and that you invite us to be your hands and feet extended into a world that requires your hope. May we model compassion. May we be your people. May we run to those who feel lost on the side of the road. May we be bridge builders for relationships that are broken. sensitive to who is feasting at our table and who requires nourishment. May we be bold enough to allow you to speak to us and cause us to recognize exactly what you desire in our lives. Causing us to recognize you are the person that this text is speaking to. Lord, be near to us today. We offer ourselves to you. 
We want to be more like you. And so as Mother Teresa so aptly said, we begin with listening. Speak, Lord. Lord.